The Rami Zaid Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to The Rami Zaid Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. I hope everyone out there had a fantastic holiday and new year. And here we go with 2021. My guest today is Ralph Leon, and as far as corporate finance goes, Ralph has done just about everything in his 20-year career, from asset management out of college, to strategy consulting, to M&A and industry investment banking, to principal M&A, to corporate development, and now as a chief financial officer. Ralph and I talk about how each one of his stops along his career builds upon the other and the lessons he learned along the way. He likens his career growth to building Legos, which I thought was a great metaphor for his talents. That said, I hope you all enjoy this conversation with Ralph Leon. Ralph, welcome to the Rami Zaid Show. It's good to be here, Rami. Thanks for having me. I want to start with something that I thought was was pretty good, Ralph. You're, we'll get into your 20 years, your background, which is so diverse, but something I heard is... Ralph Leon is a man without a from, quote unquote. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so my wife makes fun of me for that, right? So, you know how you meet people at a, at a party or anywhere and you ask them, so where are you from? Whenever someone asks me that question, I have to explain. Like, it's not a two-word answer. Like, oh, I'm from San Francisco or something. So, so actually, I, I was born in Hong Kong and we immigrated out to, out to Canada when I was six. So then I spent the early formative years in Toronto, did my high school and college in Vancouver, and I went back and forth a little bit uh, between Toronto and Vancouver, spent a couple of years in London, and then New York for another 10 years. And I went back to Hong Kong as an expat for four and a half, five years, and now I'm in the Bay. So if you add it all up, it's, it's actually fairly evenly distributed. It's about 10 years in Toronto, 10 years in Vancouver, 10 years in New York, 10 years in, in Hong Kong. And now last four years in the Bay. So how do you how do you answer the question of where you're from if it's just based on time spent? You know, my family's all over the place. So even now, you know, if somebody would ask me, I would just say, well, I guess San Jose, because that's where that's where I live and that's where my family lives. <laughs> now, when you so born in Hong Kong, you left Hong Kong at, at what age? Six. It's six. Okay. And the, from there you said was Toronto and then Vancouver, correct? Toronto, Vancouver, yes. I would think that, you know, your formative years of Toronto, Vancouver would be pretty influential on you today. Is that a correct statement? As in, I don't want to live in that kind of weather anymore, yes. <laughs> Freezing. Yeah. So that, that is the correct statement. Right. But, but other than that, though, like, it's hard to say I'm from there because, you know, I, I don't have any friends that are out there. You know, I haven't kept in touch with people. We moved around so much when I was young. You know, I, I don't even remember where I lived back then. Right. So it's tough to say that's where I'm from. Interesting. We'll try to avoid that question at the next cocktail party we go to, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's the problem. Someone asked me that question, you know, I waste five minutes of their time, and then I still don't have an answer. <laughs> I like it. So, Ralph, I, we're going to get into your career, which I said is, you know, it's extremely interesting. But a couple kind of fun questions to get going. How do you start your day? I usually ask my guests and break down their morning. Do you have any routines, habits that uh, that you kickstart the day to? Now, yes. Right. So, so post COVID and post baby, 
Because mm-hmm. we got our, our third baby arrived in July. So now post-COVID, post-baby, start in the morning, early. I, I wake up first, wake everybody else up. I wake up before the baby does. Uh, I try to get in, get in about four. What time do you wake up, Ralph? Around six. Around six. Okay. Right? Well, I don't feel too lazy. Mm-hmm. I try to get in a quick workout before the rest of the house wakes up. So it's it's a lot of 15, 20 minute hit workouts, full body, get the day started. Otherwise, I'm pretty grumpy the rest of the day when I get work on it. <laughs> and then I walk around the house and I wake everybody else up and get them ready for school. There you go. That workout, are you, is this your own, are you pulling this from a Peloton or what, I guess, where do you get the workouts from? YouTube. YouTube. It's just, oh. uh, yeah, I just found a whole bunch of, bunch of trainers online. I'm able to follow, follow the routine. So it's all... Most of them are no equipment uh, or light dumbbells, but high intensity. So it could be 45 seconds on, 15 seconds rest, you know, and, you, and you do that for, for 15, 20 minutes. And is that for you, Ralph? I, I have to assume you, you mentioned you don't do it, you get grumpy. Is that a physical, is that a mental, is that a both for you when you're we're getting that quick workout in? It's both. It's both. Because after I drop the kids off, I'm back at my desk at nine, and, and my days now are basically from 9 a.m. at 9 a.m. till 6 of just nonstop meetings, just nonstop. Mm-hmm. You know, typical days between 12 to 15 meetings a day. So I'm sitting in my chair. And so if I don't get, get a quick workout in the morning, it's going to be tough. Evenings are tough because then you're just dealing with dinner for the family, bedtime and all that. So by the time you put everyone else to bed, I'm exhausted. Right. Yeah, I can assume with especially yeah. a, a newbie during during COVID. Mm-hmm. In that morning, are you cooking breakfast for the the family as well? Because you mentioned six a.m. wake up back at the, the desk basically at nine. There's a gap there. You, is that kind of family time for you? It is. Well, it's just a drop off because my kids go to different schools. So you know, I, I do make them breakfast. I'm great at cereal. <laughs> Captain Crunch. You know, there I, you I pour a great glass of milk. And then I take him to different schools. So I just drive him back and forth. It takes a decent amount of time. Yeah, and just getting little kids dressed. You know, they they're they're in this weird phase that they don't want to put clothes on. <laughs> that makes that makes it interesting to try and get them out the door. Yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> right, I'm sure you remember what that was like. You know, when, when they're in the five, six, seven year old range, like they they don't want to put clothes on. Right, Ralph. Thanks for that. I I want to get into your career, which I. I've heard you say before, you know, some people, you know, with your finance background, they stay in one one swim lane. And you've mentioned that your career is more like putting Legos together. All that said, I want to start way back to Cornell, where you got your MBA. Can you tell me a little bit about, I guess, why you chose Cornell and what, you know, influences were there that, that carry you now to your career? Yeah. So that was an interesting part of my life, you know, like, before business school, I was up in Toronto. I was a strategy consultant at Anderson Consulting, which is now Accenture. And I wanted to get into investment banking. And investment banking proper M&A or capital markets in New York. And, and I couldn't at the time. Right? So I was maybe six years out of school, out of uh, undergrad. And I couldn't because there just wasn't a natural entry point. So then I realized, okay, I got to go back to business school get the stamp of it's got to be from a reputable school that has a natural recruiting process where the investment banks go to campus and have you know, small armies of recruiting teams and recruit X number of students from each school. It's structured. It's an entry point. It's a very standard program. Join as an associate. Um, but I, need, I knew that's what I needed to be able to break into the industry. And so then I looked around at, at a variety of schools in the U.S., 
did the usual U.S. news rankings and you know, applied to a number of them. And then ultimately what it came down to was I, was I was pretty lucky. I was able to get into a few of the schools that I applied to. And I chose Cornell for a couple of interesting reasons. And I think this goes back a little bit to my, my consulting training. I tend to overthink a lot. And sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not. But I think for this situation, it helped me. What I did was I, I interviewed a number of alum uh, from these schools and asked them about their recruiting process when they were going through investment making. Right? So when it, it's a two-year MBA program. You start recruiting pretty much two months in, in your first year, right, to recruit for the summer internship. And nine out of ten times, the summer internship is what gives you your full-time offer. Right? So you're basically interviewing for a full-time job two years out you know, after you graduate, two months into your first year. So that recruiting process is super critical. So then I asked a number of students who went through the process, how did it work for you? And did you find, were you successful? How many offers did you get? Were you able to go to the bank that you wanted to work at? Or was it just whatever you were left with? And every school is a little bit different. But what I learned was at certain schools, you're competing with a bunch of other ex-bankers who are analysts. That, that may have done their two, three years, go back to business school. So the resumes look better than yours. Or, you know, former McKinsey, Bain, BCG, also great resumes. And that's the pool that you're competing with, right? That's the stack of resumes on paper that a, a recruiter would screen to determine for the interview. And I, I knew my own resume didn't quite stack up as nicely as theirs on paper. You know, I knew I needed to get in front of someone, give me a chance to interview, give me a chance to talk to them, tell them my story. So I found a school like Cornell where two things differentiate. Number one, Cornell is a career switcher school. That's what they're known for. Like people who don't necessarily come from a former investment banking or top tier consulting background, who's going back into banking post-grad. So it's at a much more level playing field. Number two, it's a full grades disclosure school. You know, as in, if you do well in your classes, you can actually disclose your grades through the recruiting process. You know, it has another differentiate help you stand out. So I chose Cornell for, the, for those two reasons. Right? That number one, I felt that if I was competing with a level playing field, I'd have a much better shot at getting the interview. And if I just got the interview, I was pretty confident that I'd have a good shot at getting an offer. And number two, I if I just study my butt off, I can use grades as another way to differentiate myself. Right? Just as, as a Canadian, you know, coming into the U.S. market, trying to compete, you know, with a number of great students, it was it was hard. I had a number of cards stacked against me. Uh, so I had to be more strategic about what school I went to and then I want to um, to be recruited. And, you know, fast forward, I fast forward through the recruiting process and, and everything played out exactly how, how we had, you know, we had planned. And you get a number of uh, interviews, number of offers, and, and it was a great recruiting process. And was that, I think I have this right, was that then Citibank? Was that your first, I guess, gig out of Cornell or was it more yes. Citibank? Okay. It was City, so I joined City's investment banking group uh, in New York, right out of uh, right out of business school. You know, and this was City back in back in '04. You know, they were they were doing great up in the league tables. You know, top one, two, three in most of the league tables, and and they had a very strong recruiting presence uh, at Cornell. Mm-hmm. And so, with with what you mentioned on Cornell, then was that were you basically locked into Citibank two months into your MBA? Pretty much, you know, I, I, we got the offer. I got the offer right after Christmas break, right after Christmas break, in my first year, to do the summer internship. And then, you know, I was performing just 
make sure I perform and don't screw things up and don't piss anybody off to get a full-time offer and go back. Because <laughs> right? if you don't get a full-time offer, the, the chances of getting a full-time offer without interning first, it's very difficult. Because that's that's how these programs are run. Right? They, they are using, the banks are basically using the summer internship to interview you for three months. Right? And then right. if they like you, then they make an offer back. So 90% plus of the returning class comes from internship. And I learned all this after the fact, right? After I joined the banks, when I was, especially when I was at Morgan Stanley, I was involved with recruiting every single year. So I learned all the secrets afterwards, but that's that's how the game is played. Right. Now, so from Citibank, were you there through the financial crisis? Because you said 04, was that to 07, 08, or were you out of Citibank before that? Because I think Morgan Stanley was your next gig uh, thereafter. I was at City not for that long. I was at City for maybe just like nine months or so, and then I got recruited out of there to join Morgan Stanley. So I joined Morgan Stanley in the beginning of 07. So definitely pre, pre-crisis. And Morgan Stanley, I don't believe it was the same, call it job title, as it was at Citibank, correct? It was the same function, but different, slightly different industry. Okay. So when I was at Citi, I was still in investment banking, but the, the industry that I had served was much more, what was a broader financial institutions group. And so they call it the financial institutions group where... Our clients range from big banks to asset managers to you know software players that happen to be in the industry, uh, in the financial services industry, you know, to broker dealers, etc. And then when I joined Morgan Stanley, I narrowed that focus to primarily fintech. And so this is this is well before fintech became sexy and cool, and everyone wants to be in it now. You know, back then fintech was uh, institutional. They were the big brokers, the big exchanges. So New York Stock Exchange, Intercontinental Exchange, NASDAQ, those kind of guys, as well as the, the data providers. So Bloomberg, uh, Thomson Reuters, Backset, you know, these were, uh, and then the payment processors. So Visa, MasterCard, First Data, that was a universe of fintech back then. You know, that, uh, and we were a small team, and we were the best team in the, in the world that was focused on fintech and investment banking. From what I have, Ralph, that was, you know, call it the the early 10s or so. You're at Morgan Stanley. At that point in your career, so we're going to get to, you know, you being a CFO now. Are you thinking, hey, this is a stepping stone. I'm going to eventually become a CFO. Or are you at that point saying, you know what, I like this gig and just whatever's happening in your career happens? Yeah, it was a ladder. It was a ladder. You know, at that point, honestly, that point was just thinking about how do I survive? <laughs> it was... How- how do I just get through this one day at a time? Because it's, it's a tough industry. It's a tough job. You know, but I liked it. I was learning tons. And it was, it was always exciting to work on deals that you are you're able to read in the Wall Street Journal. You, know, you are able to, to, to do what you thought you were going to be able to do when you're in business school, when you were studying these case studies about certain companies merging, buying one another. How does a chess game get played? And I was doing mostly M&A work at the time. So it was definitely exciting, learning a ton. I wasn't thinking as far out becoming CFO at that point. It was, let's, let's keep learning, doing this for as long as I can. Maybe one day I'll make managing director and, and go from there. You know, it's funny you said that because you mentioned something earlier that you are a chronic overthinker. But at this point in your career, you're saying, I wasn't overthinking it. I was just kind of going with the flow. Do you think this overthinking is something that's, that you've learned over time? Because I'm assuming that's the case. Yes, you know it's. Uh, I have this 
interesting debate with folks sometimes, right? Where you get to a certain point in your career and you have folks who want to keep improving their weaknesses. And so they, they can be better generalists and they, they're good at certain things. And then at some point in your career, you realize, you know what? I'm probably not going to get much better at my weaknesses, but my strengths are quite good. So I'm going to triple down on my strengths. And so I may be at that, at that part of my career now where I realize, you know what? There's certain things that I'm good at. I'm just going to triple down on those, on those strengths, find opportunities and roles where you can really leverage those strengths. Uh, and then I can build a team that can help me with the, with the weaknesses. Was that hard for you, Ralph? Just you being a CFO for an awesome company now, your career, which we haven't even got halfway through yet, is super exciting. But was that hard for you with your background to say, I got to let my weaknesses go and focus on my strengths? Was that a struggle or is that something that came fairly easy for you when you made a decision? Oh, it was a struggle. It was a struggle. So even when I built up my career, and I think a lot of it was luck. A lot of it was just following the right person, you know, who, who took an interest in my career. But it's fairly diverse. Like I, I didn't go down the path of staying in investment banking in M&A and just, you know, get more senior every year and just keep doing the same thing for, for a decade. I, I jumped around a little bit. You know, I was pulled in different directions. I had different opportunities that came up. And part of that thinking at the time, and this is early in my career, was, hey, I want to be more well-rounded. Like I intentionally wanted to be more well-rounded. I didn't just want to do deals. I want to learn about businesses. I want to learn about how you operate. I wanted to learn about PR and operations and product and, and everything else. Right? So I took advantage of those opportunities that came up. And this is still within Morgan Stanley. It's a very non-traditional career path. But, uh, but I was intentional about doing that. Versus now, I'm much more intentional about, okay, let's really focus on the areas that I'm really good at. If you could pick, just pick two for the audience, Ralph, if you could pick two areas that you're really good at, what would you say they are? Yeah, I have to figure out how to, how to properly humble brag. Oh, um, no, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, you know, being a strategic thinker that is able to marry business realities with finance and strategy, right? So, so for example, in my role as a CFO, you know, it's, it's not always and only about the dollars and cents. It's to think about growing the business. How do we navigate through certain challenges? This year certainly was one of them. But with a with through financial lenses and, and strategic lenses. Right? But I lead with the business side first. And I think that's that's a skill set that I've developed over time that I like doing. And then another one is is just being that trusted partner, right? Being able to adapt depending on who the audience is, who I'm working with, who the who the audience is. You know, maybe because I moved around so much as a child and I've had discussions about this with different people where they say, how, how, how do you feel like you're able to develop the skill sets and be able to adapt to different people? So I think part of it just goes back to moving around a ton when I was a kid. So I had to make new friends almost every, every two years. Yeah, right, right. right. So that's helped me in my job, right? I think it, it certainly helped me as an investment banker where, you know, you're managing a bunch of different clients, different personalities, different, different jobs, different uh, objectives. Definitely as a consultant, where you go from client to client to client, project to project. You know, and, and certainly now as, as, a, as a CFO, where I'm a partner, I'm a business partner first. So you know, working with head of sales, right, which has a different personality, different strengths versus my head of marketing versus my CEO versus my head of product. Right? These are very different personalities and they try to find a way to work well with all of them and communicate with them. And those are great answers, Ralph. I'll say that 
we're now at this point where I think there's a bit of a job switch, so to speak, from Morgan Stanley to Lucid. Can you tell me about that that process that you're going through? You're you know you just mentioned your diversification of your mind. Now you're jumping over to Lucid Motors in a bit of a different role. How was that jump? Why did you make the jump? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so so the jump that I made actually was to, to a company called the Eco. At Lucid Motors, I was on the board of directors. Uh, it was an investment. The Eco had an investment into Lucid. So um, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. But that was when I left the investment banking industry you know, and took my first took my first at that at being an operator. Uh, so the CFO for a company called the Eco in the United States. It was a uh, a China backed business, big conglomerate out in China, and uh, it's basically. Think of Apple and Samsung and Netflix mashed into one, but an early stage business where it was, uh, we provided smart devices, phones, TVs, as well as uh, content, but integrated into one user interface. And so I wanted to take on that role because over the course of my investment banking career, I learned the whole time about being an operator, right? Just whether it's from riding in the, in the, in the backseat to, learning from a ton of great CEOs and CFOs who were my clients to taking on a number of operating roles where I got to try my, try it myself. Taking this role at Leico was interesting because I wanted to leave banking, but wasn't quite sure how. Right? And there's typically two paths when people leave investment banking at a senior level. They either go into a big company into corporate development, or they go into a smaller, earlier stage company as CFO. Yep. So I, I chose a ladder path because I wanted that diversification of experience. And, but I also didn't really want to go to a brand new startup right away because it's just a, I think culture shock wise, you know, and a number of other considerations. I didn't want to make that big of a switch immediately. So the eco was a bit of uh, somewhere in the middle right? because it was backed by a corporate. We had funding from the corporates, you know, but it still had the Silicon Valley startup flavor. Right? And we grew from 25 people to 400 people in, in a year and a half. So I was able to learn some of the startup world aspects of building a team and, and being in a startup environment, but without losing all of the safety safety nets of, of a bigger company. I want to actually, you beat me to the punch on what you just said there, Ralph, the, the safety net. What There had to be some sort of fear. You're, you have two paths, right? The big company path you could have gone on for Morgan Stanley, that's the safe bet, right? You go a little bit of the riskier route. You're an overthinker. You just mentioned it. You take on the CFO role. Tell me about the fears that you had uh, going into that position. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so there's a safety fear, and there's also the the you know, personal insecurities and fear. Right? You know, the, the safety fear is always okay. Now you're at a blue chip company, big company, good career path. Leaving all of that behind at that point in time, I had two kids already. You know, what would what would have been the more responsible thing to do? Take on that risk, try something new, pursue a career interest, or stay on the safe path. The thinking at the time was uh, putting my 10,000 hours you know, into a certain industry where I feel like I can take one shot. I can take one shot. If it doesn't work, I can always go back. You know, that, that was the logic at the time. If I don't like it, I can always go back or do something similar. You know, but if I do like it, that may become the next part of my life. Right? And then I can go early and earlier where I can start removing the safety net one at a time. So that's that's where I am today. It's, you know, it's my third stint as a CFO because I've been able to take on more more risks and also realize where, where I'm a better fit as a CFO. I asked that question, Ralph, on purpose because if anyone looks at 
your resume, your background. I mean, you're a complete rock star. So the fact that you can sit here and say, yeah, you know, I have, I have fears just like the next guy, I think is very important, not only for the listeners, but maybe even yourself to say, yeah, I'm taking these risks and it may look good on, on paper, but there's still that, there's still something driving, driving you behind all that. Oh, absolutely. You know, like the first transition was hard. Like it was a hard transition leaving investment banking and becoming, learning how to be an operator for the first time. You know, so for example, I, I had to build a team from scratch right? from a finance organization, accounting organization. I've never done that before, right? They, they you know, that's what I do that, you know, at Morgan Stanley. You know, there were aspects of even just the, just the blocking and tackling, right? Whether it is, thinking about your accounting, thinking about your AR, AP, you know, payroll, just basic blocking and tackling stuff. I, you know, I don't come from a traditional big four accounting background. I come from the other side of finance. So I had to learn how to do all of that, roll up my sleeves and figure it all out. You know, there's also the, how do I become a good business partner? You know, as, as a banker, we are professionally trained to be good advisors. Right? That we are trained to guide decision makers towards hopefully making the right decisions and we provide them with information and data and then we try to exert enough influence to guide them the right way based on the deals that we've done in the past and experience that, that we have. And I felt like, okay, I can, that's definitely one thing I can take with me because that's basically the role of the CFO, right? So I felt like I can do that. But there's a lot of stuff about day-to-day business that I just had not been exposed to. So, you know, whether that is working closely with my head of product to figure out what the product roadmap looks like, how do you monetize a product roadmap, and then working backwards into what my plan looks like. like that's stuff that you, you don't teach you in banking. Right? You don't teach you in business school. You know, to the, the human aspect, right? when you're managing a lot of people, and you are now all of a sudden in the C-suite for a bigger company, and you're, the, you're one of the faces of the company, so you have to think about people. And how do you manage them, get them through tough times? How do you motivate them and lead them in the right direction? You know, also skills that you don't really develop or, or get trained at investment banking or business school. So I had a number of things I had to learn quickly. You know, and it was fun, but it was very challenging at the same time. And it's certainly one of the fears that I, that I had, right? Since I'd never done it before. But I'd be good at it. How do I even do it? I'm not inheriting a team. I'm starting from scratch. But I'm expected to perform. Right. Tell us about today, CFO of Five Stars, a little bit your role there and what Five Stars is doing. Yeah. So Five Stars is an interesting company. I went through my own little journey last year to figure out where would I like to work that can use the skills that I was talking talking to you about earlier, right? Where can I go to to lean on my strengths? So I Five Stars found me last year. They were going through an interesting phase. So Five Stars is a 10-year-old company. So it's hard to call us a startup. I would say we're more of a mid-cap tech company. Started 10 years ago at a Y Combinator. The thinking at the time was the two founders, former McKinsey consultants, they came out of McKinsey realizing, you know what, they, we want to do something that follows the, our faith, right? that follows the church. We are meant to do something different than work for a big company. And we're meant to help people. Right? That was what really drove them to leave McKinsey to start a company. They wanted to still leverage what they learned in McKinsey, which was, hey, a lot of the big clients that they had had amazing, robust databases that they were able to build software layers on top of that, leverage the database, leverage the data that they have, and then that's how they drive and build businesses, right? So 
Salesforce.com as an example. This is a prime example of, of a great CRM, great database. When they looked around, they realized local mom and pop businesses have no access to that. Like, this is very much an enterprise business thing. Local small businesses, and there are 3 million of them in the country, they don't have access to that. They have access to yellow pages. They have access to Valpac coupons that arrive in our mailbox. Right? That's kind of it. So they wanted to build a database, basically, right, to, for, for local businesses. But eventually, that database idea became, okay, we can actually build a network. We can build a commerce network where we can have local businesses participate and we can have consumers participate. And, and our network through technology can drive traffic, can drive customer acquisition from merchants, customer retention from merchants. So fast forward maybe seven or eight years into that journey for these guys, and they built a nice little business. At that point in time, by 2017, we had about 40 million people signed up using five stars in the country already, about 10,000 merchants or so. And the original premise of, hey, we want to help you build a database so that you can communicate with your clients and really turn day-to-day transactions into an identity. That was done. Right? So I would say we checked the box on that. But we also realized you know, CRM or software for local small businesses, for SMBs, you know, it's not, it's a tough gig. Right? If you are a one product shop, you could potentially have high churn. Right? It's just the nature of the industry. You're nice to have versus a must have. Small businesses are, are always very mindful of, of the bottom line. Right? So if you're just a nice to have spend, they tend to churn. So how do you turn yourself from a nice to have software into something that's much more integrated into the day-to-day needs of small business? That's when we moved into payment processing and became an integrated payment company. So integrating payment with the CRM. So imagine a world where you walk into your favorite coffee shop, and this is happening today, right? Where you can pay for your coffee through the five stars device, through your terminal. When you dip your card, it recognizes it's you, Robbie, welcome back. These are, you know, you've got 400 points with this, with this place, with this coffee shop. Would you like to redeem your, your points for a free drink? Right? But at the same time, it's also processing your payment. So now it's integrated to one customer experience. And that's what we're selling in the market today is an integrated payment with soft, CRM software. But our, our vision is much broader. Now, in 2020, at the end of 2020, we've got about 62 million people that are using five stars nationally. At about 14,000 merchants, we, we do about $3 billion worth of merchant sales. So this network idea is really starting to play out. So 2021 for us is going to be an exciting year because we're, we're going to bring all these pieces together and really drive forward the consumer aspect. Right? Like where you and I can, can use our apps to discover, to pay for something, to find your local merchants, redeem your loyalty points, etc. So it's going to be a very exciting journey for us. It sounds like it. Ralph, I mean, just the company itself is an exciting journey, let alone your your career. I mean, just in this conversation, it's from you know asset management out of college to strategy consulting to M&A, investment banking, principal M&A. Now you're a CFO. Do you look back? Are there is there one or two big tipping point, Ralph, in your career that you can look back and it may be an emotional thing. It may be you know a career path move. Is there something you can look back to and say, Hey, I did this one right. This is what catapulted me to X. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think when I look back now, this being not, not necessarily my favorite job, but I think it's been the most influential job to how I operate today. And that was back in Anderson Consulting. 
that was the first time in my life where I felt like I was, someone was teaching me how to think, right? How do you think in your, in your, how do you organize your thoughts in your head? How do you manage data in your head with a framework, right? How do you solve problems in your head with a framework? And then how do you use that framework, dissect it, re put the puzzle back together and be able to articulate it to different people in different ways? Right, like that framework on how do you think and then communicate on, that was the first time where I felt like anyone talked to that. Was that part of the training or was this just you being in the in the working world and, and Anderson was able to, or the people you were meeting, I guess, or is it the people that surrounding you making you think like this or is this part of the methodical training at Anderson? It, it's more the latter. It's more okay. the latter, right? Just being on these engagements, on these projects where you're sitting with the clients, you know, learning from from the more senior folks that, that I work with is just being on the job and just seeing how they operate right? and how they tackle problems. Certainly the firm has frameworks, just like McKinsey, Bain, BCJ, like all, all these consulting firms, they have general frameworks that they teach you when you first start, but seeing you know, how those frameworks are applied in practice and seeing how effective they are with clients and then behind closed doors, how do we think about it as an internal team? How do you break down problems? Like that to me was, was the most influential because I'm not in it consulting anymore, right? Like I've been out of that for a while. But that particular skill sets and approach and the framework-driven approach uh, of analysis, you know, I took that with me into investment banking, which differentiated, differentiated me a little bit, right? So I wasn't just about the deal. I was more about the whiteboard and understanding how things work and breaking down pieces uh, and then putting it back together. It definitely influences me you know, how to operate today, right? where I tended tend to do a lot of hand-waving and drawing stuff on a whiteboard to make things simple and then put it back together. Like I've always had, I've never been a great memorization student. Right? So the only, only classes that I was good at were those that I was able to truly understand. But if I understood it, then I don't have to memorize it. And that's, that's the approach that I take with, with work. Right? I try to help my team understand certain problems. And the, way, the only way to teach that is through framework and breaking things down. It's a lot of graphs, a lot of visuals, and piece by piece. Do you take that into your personal life as well? I mean, you mentioned you have <laughs> uh, two kids yeah. and a newborn. It's hard to show a newborn a graph. I get that. But there's some personal things that you can take into your everyday life as well. Yeah, I do. I do. You know, I'm definitely guilty of doing that at home a lot, especially with my seven-year-old. You know, seven-year-old, you may remember with your kids, you know, they, it's an interesting stage. Like they are becoming little little human beings, right? And they're definitely learning math in school. And 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 I don't know if you you remember this, but it's just a different way that they teach now, right? It's not they carry the one approach anymore. You know, like it's they just teach in a very different way. So I try to I try to teach my kids to think probably more strategically than they should at this age. But I do a lot of graphs. You know, I break down even to a simple math problem. You know, I draw a lot of pictures. To, to help them understand intuitively what we're solving for. And then hopefully that, that gives them enough where they can figure things out on their own. That's great. I want to touch on, which it's amazing that, that you have the time, but you also continue to have, I believe, a consulting company that's more of a, a growth and innovation advisory platform. Can you tell the audience a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So th this was an initial idea that turned into a real business. Surprisingly, so it's a company called 88 Chips. I started this back in 2017. So, being in the Bay Area for the first time, you know, you 
and certainly having done done work when I was in the banking side, you know, with clients in the Bay, you know, I understood there was a lot of innovation, a lot of startups, a lot of VCs, a lot of great mentors, a lot of angel investments. So the ecosystem is probably best here than anywhere else, better here than anywhere else. And what surprised me though is when when I was at Lico, we probably vetted about 100, 150 companies who were looking for post-C, Series A, early B investments from us. I realized something that a lot of these companies had great products, but they didn't really have you know, what I would call truly investable businesses. Right? The business model wasn't fully baked. You know, there were challenges about how you scale this business. So your, your day-to-day business aspects were not fully baked, but the product was very cool. I would certainly buy the product if it was on Shark Tank or, or something like that. And then my thesis was, well, maybe despite being in the most robust ecosystem, that there's still something missing. So I went around a number of co-working spaces. You know, I sat there from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. just interviewing early stage startups. These are a few people that are just getting started, asking them, hey, you know, you, you graduated from Y Combinator. 500 startups or you know, StartX and Stanford or whatever it is. And what do you think you would really need now? Because right? you've already graduated from those programs. I'd say most of them said, well, we still kind of need more handholding. We still kind of need a little bit more handholding, helping us with the business. We have a lot of questions. You know, it's not just about the financial side, but you know, how do we think about getting our brand recognized? How do we think about you know, hiring? Who should be my first 10 hires? How do we think of, do we need do we need finance and accounting? Do we need to set up an entity? Like just basic stuff. But these were all technical founders. So my idea was, you know what? Maybe I'll start, start a consulting company that focuses on early stage. Give them access to, you know, quote unquote, late stage expertise, but then bring it in early. Right? Help them, surround them with a small team that can guide them through the early business development, business formation, business strategy phase, and really equip these technical founders with, enough business acumen, but not in a not in a classroom format, right? not in a not in a course setting. It's day-to-day roll-up sleeves work with them. And once they once they feel like they can tread water on their own, then then we can parachute out. So that was that was a model. And it turned out great. You know, I learned a ton from it because it made me feel like I was part of the, the, the startup community, holding a business on my own and working with very early stage companies and, and founders. You know, and it's still alive now. But, you know, since I work at work at five stars full time, it's tough to find the hours. But I still try to take on a couple where we're not doing the full blown consulting work or we spend a lot of time working with them. I take on a couple companies every single year to really serve as their advisor, mentor, guiding them through the early stage. So really post C through to series A, maybe. Yeah, I would think, Ralph, it, it almost sounds like hearing you talk about that and the, and the passion for it. I mean, earlier on the podcast, you mentioned your two strengths were being a strategic thinker and a trusted partner, and you're almost paying it forward for what it sounds like you learned back at Anderson, a way to think. Mm-hmm. You, know, you take these startups, and then they're in this tweener zone where they've graduated from the accelerator. They're not yet to that next stage, and you can kind of come in and plug in and help them just like someone helped you years ago. Yeah, you know, and you know what, though, it's, I think you're absolutely right. Being in the Bay Area, and people talk about this pay forward mentality. You know, I've experienced that more here than anywhere else I've lived in the world. And so I, I love that aspect. You know, 
so many that when I was starting 88 ships, you know, nobody knew me. I didn't have a, I didn't have a Rolodex here. We just, we just repatriated back from Hong Kong, right? We were out in Hong Kong as expats for a few years and we just came back and we're not from here. My wife and I are from here. So we had no friends, no family, no network. And, you know, meeting folks like you and, and who helped introduce us to other people were just super helpful, super, super helpful. The pay-for culture, the mentality is so fantastic out here. There's a famous quote from Walt Disney, the way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing. And that's, I think that's Ralph all day long, just listening to your story, um, which is awesome. I appreciate that. So I want to get into some, some fun here, Ralph. So I like to wrap up the show with some kind of rapid fire questions for you. And the first one, just given your, this is actually kind of a fun one because given your finance background, your diverse background, your overthinking background, I want to ask you personally, what is one thing being a finance person that you do not mind spending money on? Oh, <laughs> right. Oh, that's tough. Like, I, you know, I, I think, I think my brain stopped listening when you said money and don't mind spending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one. I think the most common answers you'll probably hear people say would be, you know, experiences and whatnot. You know, I, I'd say, mm-hmm. you know, I probably lean towards something similar towards experiences, uh, but specifically experiences that are a little bit different with my family. You know, it's not not fancy dinners. You know, we we don't. You know, that's it's tough with three little kids to do anything fancy. Oh yeah, no, you're not doing anything fancy with a newborn. You no, know? but just when we do have time away. I really want to make sure that uh, that we maximize our time and truly enjoy it and we can relax and, and spend time with each other and, and only focus on that. So I don't mind spending money to make sure we get that experience. The other part, though, you know, I am, I am a bit of a foodie, you know, not oh. a fancy foodie. So it's almost like the <laughs> it's almost like the dirtier it is, the better it tastes. So I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of just really you know, flavorful food. Right? I think some of it's just from living out in Asia for a few spending a decade in New York, which had amazing food as well. So I don't mind spending on food, but not expensive food, if that makes sense. Right. No, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you have a very diverse background. We've covered that a few times on this call. But if you could choose a completely different position from what you are doing today, just call it finance, um, CFO, completely different, what would it be? Okay, so let's that, that's, that's qualify that question with a couple of questions on my own first, right? Does, is money an issue? Like, did I just win the lottery and then I can do whatever? Let's say you won the lottery, you bought me something very nice, and you can now do whatever you want. Of course. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> in, that, in that order. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so if that was the case, I would open up my own tennis shop. Tennis wow. shop. Okay. Where I can just surround myself, you know, in submerge myself in that environment. I will continue to train to be the pro that I never became and just, you know, just play tennis all day, train, work with other people, teach other kids, you know, and then also own a shop. That's great. Are you playing that? Well, I guess with COVID, it may be tough, but is tennis something that's been a passion of yours for quite a while or is this a new newfound love? No, it has been so. So, you know, one, one part I didn't mention, though, so when we, when we first moved to Toronto, when I first immigrated, I was, I, was, I was a kid, I was a chubby kid. You know, my parents were quite concerned by, by the, the size, width-wise, 
and and the lack of height. So they put me in all kinds of sports. Right. So tennis was one of them. Right? Their thinking was, oh yeah, they'll just they'll run around. Right. They'll, they'll run around and he's bound to lose some weight. But that that turned into a passion. So I, I played quite a bit as a kid, went down the tournament route, played in college, you know, all the usual the usual milestones. You know, just like just like most other you know, Asian, Asian American, Asian Canadian kids who play tennis, we all want to be Michael Chang. You know, the next Michael mm-hmm. Chang. You know, my thinking was, hey, we're about the same height. <laughs> so he can do it, I can do it, right? A little bit, no. But regardless, I, I still play today, you know, playing now. So we've been, you know, I try to play quite a few times during COVID, you know, actually more than before, because it's about the only thing, right? I can't go to the gym anymore. So whatever time I'm able to carve out on my own, you know, I just try to play tennis. Well, owning a tennis shop, got it. That's that's a great answer. Next one, we're going to go back to food. This is one I love. So the last dinner. This is the last dinner you will ever have. No one knows what's happening tomorrow. What is on the plate or plates and in the glass? Okay. Excellent question. So this is something I've actually, I think about quite a bit. Not, not about the last <laughs> But you meal. overthink about, right? Yeah. Right. But I, but I overthink. Like what happens after the last meal about my caloric content? Was, <laughs> it would be Peking duck. It would be Peking duck from Peking Garden in Hong Kong. And it's, it's a perfectly carved, crispy skin, and they serve it in, in three different ways. It's beautiful, you know, and, and I would eat the whole thing. I wouldn't share. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I would eat the whole thing on my own. And then what would be in my glass would be my last bubble tea. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and there's nothing on the side of the, the Peking duck. You just wolf that whole thing down yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, because like, the duck... That duck is carved, right? It's carved into a bunch of pieces, and then you have a wrap on the side. Like you have this steam, beautiful steam wrap, and, and you know, think of it as like a very thin you know, tortilla wrap. It's heated. You put the duck in, you know, with your celery, with your sauce, uh, you know, some salt on top. Like it's it's beautiful. But there are a lot of pieces. You, know, you won't be able to eat anything else on the side. Oh man, you're making my mouth water. It sounds it's like <laughs> one day I'm, you know, you and I are going to go to Hong Kong and I will take you to exactly this place. I love it. I love it. Ralph, this conversation has been awesome. Your background, your thoughts on life, your family, what you've learned. I mean, I think the audience is going to learn a lot from this conversation. Is there anything that you would like to leave the audience with, whether it's, you know, something from yourself or a favorite quote? Huh. That's, that's also another good question. I think one reference that I use quite often in my life is, is just, you know, in the Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, right, concept. You know, and, and I, I share that with my kids all the time. It's just more about the ideas that you know, nothing really comes easy. You just got to put in your reps. You just got to put your head down, put in your reps, and one day you'll get good at something. You know, and that's, that's just the philosophy that I, that I share all the time, but it goes back to his book. You know, and, uh, yeah, it's one of my favorites. Love it. Ralph, thank you so much for your time today. I'll let the audience know where to find you on on LinkedIn, but we really appreciate the time, Ralph. This is fantastic. Thanks for having me. This has been fun, so I'm glad I was able to be on the show. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and I hope you enjoyed that conversation I had with Ralph Leon. You can find Ralph at LinkedIn at Ralph L. Leon, and you spell Leon L-E-U-N-G. And you can find me at my website, which is ramize.com. 
R-O-M-Y-Z-E-I-D.com. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to The Rami Zaid Show.